I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about the increasingly influential and well-funded sphere of right-wing media and the regulatory changes over the past century that have enabled its rise. And later in the show, we're talking to Walter Shapiro about what exactly is going on with the Trump campaign. This is The Politics of Everything. A recent story by The Washington Post, Christopher Ingraham, referenced a survey of 1,008 Americans, which found that people who get most of their information from the mainstream print and broadcast outlets tended to have an accurate assessment of the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic and the risks of infection. But those who relied on conservative sources, such as Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, were more likely to believe in conspiracy theories or unfounded rumors, such as the belief that taking vitamin C could prevent infection. We are joined today by Moira Weigel, who wrote a review in our July-August issue of a biography of Matt Drudge by Matthew Lysiak and a history of alternative media, political junkies, by Claire Bond Potter. Moira is a postdoctoral scholar at the Harvard Society of Fellows and a founding editor of Logic Magazine. So, uh, Moira, what is up with the alternative conservative media and uh, COVID-19 conspiracy theories? What do you think is driving that? Uh, Thanks for having me on. You know, I'm not an expert in COVID misinformation, but what we do see very strikingly uh, with conspiracy theories, various rumors and misinformation about covid the way in which these plugged into a sort of pre-existing landscape of right-wing media, pre-existing skepticism, suspicion of the authority of academic institutions, certain political institutions, this pre-existing skepticism meant that certain audiences were primed to be skeptical of information about covid coming out of the CDC, coming from medical experts or the mainstream media. When we talk about fake news, especially around things like this, it feels like this force of nature, especially because of the ways that misinformation spreads in this sort of context-free zone. It spreads on social media or email, and people who consume it don't necessarily look at the source that they're getting it from and kind of analyze, like, how likely is this to be accurate? One thing I want to sort of nail down is what kinds of outlets are we talking about? Like, who are the individuals responsible for shaping that environment? On radio, we could talk about Rush Limbaugh. We could talk on television, broadcast about Fox News. Online, we could talk about publications like Breitbart.com, but also about communities that form around something like the QAnon conspiracy theory. None of these exists in isolation. They're all interacting with and sort of networked with one another. Mm-hmm. So something that can seem like it's just spreading virally is in fact coming from a fairly centrally located and like well-networked group of people, right? I think that's right. There's a tendency when confronted with a new media technology in a shifting or sort of unstable political landscape 
to want to attribute cause to the technology, right? To say it's because we have the internet, Mm -hmm. it's because we have social media that we're experiencing this kind of epistemic crisis that we're in right now, uh, which is reflected, for instance, in widespread skepticism about COVID. I think that it's too technologically deterministic to say there was a stable environment in which Americans agreed on truth claims, and then the World Wide Web came, and then Reddit and Facebook came, and now we don't. It attributes a kind of agency to technology that's sort of object fetishistic, that technology doesn't have. We also know, just to cite one data point, that people over 65 are the most politically polarized people in this country, and they're also least likely to use the internet for their news sources. So it doesn't come right out of the internet. Finally, I think there's a real desire, and it's an understandable one, on the part of many people in the media and on the part of technology platforms, too, to think that fake news or disinformation is a kind of discrete problem where if we could just fix the disinformation, you know, fact-checked or correct it, take it off the platform, that would solve the problem of a loss of faith in existing institutions, solve the problem of conspiratorial thinking. And we know from all kinds of examples that this simply isn't true. People don't evaluate claims about political issues in that way. I mean, if we want to really push it, I think some might say fake news is more a symptom of polarization than a cause of polarization. People disbelieve things because they're in news sources that they know they don't like and people in their lives don't like. So the background to the COVID misinformation and I think the increasing attention that people have given to misinformation in the last four years Mm -hmm. is a much longer struggle between an ideal of objectivity and an idea that there is a kind of mainstream media in the US and that there has been for about 100 years that upholds this ideal of objectivity, tries to serve as the paper of record or as a sort of neutral broadcaster, whether that's in radio or television. And then groups of people who see themselves as being on the outside of that, who think that objectivity is not a reasonable goal for journalism, who are more devoted to ideas of advancing a partisan agenda or another form of truth-telling, and who don't feel that balance is the main goal. So what I really liked about your piece is you basically go all the way back to the 1920s and sort of like radio regulation to talk about that. So the establishment of a kind of more stable ecosystem, is it fair to say that happens with regulations on radio in the 20s and then the fairness doctrine? You know, these are all complex histories who have their own experts in them. But I think very broadly speaking, if we want to talk about the mainstream media, I think there are three kinds of infrastructural material underlying changes we want to talk about. Technologically, there's the rise of mass print media, radio, television, broadcast technology. Sociologically or institutionally, you have the rise of professional journalism, various professional norms that govern how journalists do their work and their relationships to sources in government and later in corporations. And importantly, of a shift from a subscription to an ad-based model, uh, which changes the character of what mainstream media is a bit. And then third and finally, you have this legal regulatory apparatus that Laura was just uh, alluding to, uh, which includes in 1927, this Radio Act passed by Congress that set certain standards about the broadcasting of partisan political content, which is then enshrined in this more famous fairness doctrine that the Federal Communications Commission establishes in 1949. So what does that require an outlet to do? Like, how does it aim to create so-called fairness? 
Yeah, so the Fairness Doctrine in 1949 requires broadcast stations, when they're broadcasting about controversial political topics, they have an affirmative duty to include voices on multiple sides of the issue. And so the kind of show that Rush Limbaugh's is would not be possible. It's repealed by the FCC or walked back in 1987, and Limbaugh goes on to national broadcast in 1988. It's a very direct line. Well, the direct line there is, as you say, they, the Fairness Doctrine was passed in part in response to Father Coughlin, mm-hmm. the virulently right-wing radio host who had a hugely successful show. Mm-hmm. And then you ditch it in the 80s, and almost immediately Rush Limbaugh becomes the most popular radio host in the country. Mm-hmm. And there have been all kinds of reflections by critical media theorists about whether there is something about radio in particular, you know, the way it activates listeners that makes it a particularly good medium for right-wing broadcasting. I do think of, of like, angry men stuck in traffic, just, like, <laughs> immersed in this bath of rage. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> the radio, though, is also a good example of the intersection of a legal change, a regulatory change, with technological change. Mm-hmm. Because even though we don't think of radio as new or dynamic technology, the availability of FM radio stations mm-hmm. meant that all the music stations that were so popular move over to FM and you suddenly have all these free AM radio spots, which are low quality, but perfect for someone delivering an impassioned rant. Precisely. And you know, to <laughs> Rush at his peak was incredibly good at I think, how long was the show? Three, four hours? He would, one man, you're you're paying (laughs) one guy and then a handful of staff, and he's filling three hours a day for you. And that's a great example, too, of how technology and sort of pre-existing social circumstances intersect. Like, you have the need to sell ads. You also have people uh, with long commute times in cars. You know, a certain constellation or intersection needs to line up for something to take off like that. And um, perhaps we've seen something similar with the rise of mobile social media and the ways in which we now get new right-wing communities online. Mm. Right. And, and this kind of diversification of channels wasn't just happening in radio. I mean, even before the internet, you have the same same thing with cable. There are more channels available. Satellite TV becomes viable. And again, there's less regulation. You have this part in your piece where you describe a new TV channel isn't going to try and replicate a kind of fair and balanced network. It's going to try and carve out a niche. I mean, there's like a business incentive to do that. And um, there's also the kind of more ideological freedom to do that. Yeah, precisely. I think that gets us to this pivotal point, which most of your piece is about, which is this moment in the 90s when the first like pioneers of right-wing media are logging on just as everyone is starting to get the internet and figuring out what they might do online, how they might shape this new form of media. You open with Andrew Breitbart, driving down the freeway in L.A., listening to Rush Limbaugh. And he's kind of like laboring away in the trenches and this like low-level job in Hollywood and then realizes like he could start a website and have a huge megaphone. Yeah, I love the vision of Young Breitbart because it highlights the ways in which the kind of business Breitbart.com is does not come out of nowhere. It also, I think, gets at... 
this sense, and this is a phrase that the historian Nicole Hemmer uses for right-wing media entrepreneurs too, but this sense of thwarted entitlement is her phrase, which I think really um, (laughs) accurately describes the sort of positioning and psyche of someone like Breitbart. It's a sense of exclusion from institutions to which he, uh, for one or another reason, felt himself entitled that motivates the formation of a kind of counterpublic sphere that understands itself largely in opposition to those institutions, right? Mm. So there's a little group of people out there in LA in the 90s. There's Breitbart, there's Matt Drudge, for whom Breitbart served as a kind of assistant, intern, protege, mm-hmm. um, Steve Bannon. I'm trying to build up a picture of this early right-wing media world. You know, Bannon worked on the financing for Breitbart at at one stage. He got a major cash infusion from Robert Mercer shortly before Breitbart died in 2012 that went into the reinvention or reboot of the Breitbart site with Steve Bannon in charge. So he's out there, Ben Shapiro, uh, Julia Hahn, who are these early Breitbart employees who have since become famous or infamous, are out there. Uh, I think in the dump of uh, Breitbart emails that Joe Bernstein got at BuzzFeed back in 2017, Milo says he was out there and went at least once to eat with Peter Thiel at his home there. Uh, So you have this, (laughs) this mix of various figures who maybe weren't household names before the Trump election, who now are. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Peter Thiel and you mentioned the Mercers because... To my mind, the sort of ethos of people like Breitbart, like the defining quality was that he felt rejected and disrespected because he was a conservative in a liberal milieu, right? And that's the thesis of so much of what he said about conservatism was purely about resenting liberal Hollywood. He really didn't have a whole lot to say on the subject beyond that. And meanwhile, they create a network that connects them to literal billionaires to fund their <laughs> projects. <laughs> it's like they, they, like they, the their conception of how power operates and who has it um, is so personal and cultural and disconnected from what conservatism is supposed to actually be about in theory. Yeah, as perhaps only rather you know pretty privileged college educated folks would place that kind of weight on on the <laughs> transformative power of culture and discourse over politics. But yeah, I think that's quite right. So you you read Breitbart's book, mm. uh, Righteous Indignation, right? And I, Hollywood Interrupted. Don't forget his co-authored uh, book about yeah. Hollywood <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> I read Righteous Indignation to review it back in 2011 when it came out. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like reading like a funhouse mirror version of Adorno or something where everything was like culture industry. And I think that literally says, makes it explicit. He says Hollywood is more important than Washington. Like that was it for him. But then that makes the fact that his tribe will never have control over the culture industry like the ultimate injustice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and meanwhile, you know, there are these right-wing movies in whose production Bannon is involved. Uh, There's a whole sort of media ecosystem based around Hollywood, too, that just never gets reviewed or written about. But they absolutely take the power of culture from critical theory and also from the new left and figures like Saul Alinsky uh, very seriously. So just to be clear, for Drudge and Breitbart, this feeling of being rejected by Hollywood was literal. They they weren't just living there and seeing liberal Hollywood and experiencing it as consumers of culture. They actually were people who were trying to succeed in liberal Hollywood. 
Breitbart was a runner on The Price is Right. And Drudge was also a runner for a producer. And um, you have this great line in your piece where you say he actually got his first scoops literally out of the garbage. Yeah, in the CBS mailroom. So there is this sense of like a direct link between like rejecting this like mainstream cultural industry and like building your own media empire on your resentment of it. That's right. And I think what's striking sort of revisiting that 90s moment is that a lot of what Drudge believes and Breitbart believes isn't so far off from the views of their cyber utopian neighbors up in Northern California, who we usually think of as much more liberal or having a very different political disposition. It's interesting that you mention the Northern Californian culture and the Los Angeles kind of culture, right? Because in the conversations that we've had in the last four years, in the ways that we've seen Trump supporters covered, the instinct is for journalists to say like, I've just got to get onto a plane and like fly out into the middle of the country and meet these people who have rejected the coastal elites. When in fact, the people who architected conservative media, it's totally a West Coast phenomenon. And it really represents the interaction of like this very like Los Angeles specific conservatism, which is a reaction to like Hollywood liberalism. And then it's like mixed in with Bay Area tech utopianism. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's important to take the sort of cyber utopian, tech utopian core of the new right wing media seriously. The kinds of belief in open markets and speech online uh, are ideas that Breitbart and others in his milieu talk about. And that is very close to what optimists about the Internet in the 1990s have to say about its potential to liberate thought, liberate speech. Right. And so, and like Drudge has this idea when he's starting out and talking to journalists, there's a sort of like Darwinist idea that if you just put everything out there, the best ideas will win. Mm -hmm. And those will probably be like some kind of conservative critique of the way we live now. And, And that kind of reflects this like libertarian Silicon Valley, like information wants to be free kind of ethos. One thing that interested me was that like Matt Drudge also starts out with a critique of objectivity Mm -hmm. and it's not an entirely ridiculous critique. You know, he's like, he doesn't believe that it's possible to be fair. So why not just publish things and like see how they land? Matt Drudge does have this kind of idea or ideology about the open internet and the internet as a free unregulated marketplace of ideas. And that's why he hates and is very suspicious of the internet monopolies that we have now. One of my favorite scenes in the Lysiak biography is when Drudge shows up supposedly unannounced at a taping of Alex Jones' show and starts ranting about social media, sort of this unhinged diatribe against (laughs) social media companies, which have created a very different internet than the internet of the 1990s, one that we could say is both more open and less open than older media landscapes, right? Facebook has made it possible for anyone to broadcast anything. It has also placed power over the speech acts of 2 billion plus users in the hands of one person, essentially. So it's both. Both are true, that it's democratizing and it's not. It's sort of like a liberty equality trade-off and set of tensions that we see time and again in debates about technology and democracy and democracy generally. Well, right, like in a lot of debates about the marketplace, 
you know, Facebook would say that the kind of crazy shit that gets popular there is popular because people want to like and share it and look at it. It's what they want to look at, right? And to some extent, as talk radio became more and more right-wing in the 90s, it was sort of a similar conversation. Like, this is what people want to listen to. Roger Ailes would probably have said something similar about the kind of programming on Fox. So look at our ratings, this is what people want. But of course, I do always think that that simplistic sort of explanation of the marketplace choosing right-wing media always tends to ignore the incredible amount of uh, funding that, <laughs> like, right-wing media is very well funded. <laughs> like, one of the books you're talking about is sort of a history of the alternative media on both sides. And, I mean, you look at the history of the left media through the 20th century, and, uh, you know, besides the CIA doing a couple magazines, like, they're just <laughs> they're not the same. It's really not the yeah, same. Yeah, Robert Mercer isn't <laughs> pouring money into a dissent or logic. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it's interesting to come back to this critique of objectivity, right? The right has a critique of objectivity, And they're able to take the new technology and kind of benefit from the new regulatory environment in order to blanket the internet with their views and often examples of misinformation. It's much harder for the left to mount its critique of objectivity. You know, in the piece, you talk about the ways in which journalists from the left have tried to break apart the so-called mainstream media's commitment to fairness and balance by saying, you know, the mainstream media isn't interested in a critique of maybe U.S. foreign policy and a left-wing journalist might respond to that by like going and doing an expose, mm-hmm. going and doing investigative work, founding a new magazine that's engaged in rigorous critique. You know, one of the examples you give is like I have Stones Weekly or the work of Seymour Hersh. That stuff is just really expensive. Mm-hmm. It takes a really long and time. Hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And you need like serious funding or you need to be independently wealthy or you need to be willing to like live very frugally in order to be able to do it. And that just simply isn't the case for the right. There is this huge imbalance in what they can achieve with their critique of objectivity and what the left can achieve. And the left's response to the the ideal of objectivity is like, it's a good ideal, like we we want to make it more truthful, more accurate. We want to add to it. And the right response is like, we want to walk away from this and just like go and do stories about like moral panics and like how COVID can be treated by drinking orange juice. There's this interesting ambivalence in how right-wing media talk about objectivity as an ideal, because on the one hand, I think they often critique what uh, an organization like the New York Times thinks of as objectivity or describes as objectivity, saying that, oh, well, what those actors call objectivity is just it represents a certain set of interests, a certain kind of liberal hegemony of a certain set of actors, a certain cultural milieu. And then on the other hand, they very effectively weaponize the ideal of objectivity against the very institutions that profess it by saying, well, if you're objective, then you have to cover our point of view. And when, you know, to cite one memorable example, Richard Spencer questions whether Jews are human, CNN will run a chyron saying, Richard Spencer asks, are Jews human, you know, and, mm-hmm. and amplifies right wing or white nationalist messages in a way that's quite dangerous. Uh, for some of the reasons you're we talking about earlier, people don't sort of fact check these claims and process them as information. Another difference between the right and the center and the left, the difference between their conceptions of objectivity is what the purpose of it is, right? 
And if anything, the people who work at the New York Times, most of them, I think, try very hard to adhere to that ideal because they believe it better informs their readers. But right-wing journalism is much more instrumental. I mean, it is primarily about advancing a cause. And informing people of the truth is an afterthought. And I think even on very left-wing media, that's not usually the mindset people are working with. Yeah, I think even when conservative media is not focused on disregarding the truth or telling lies, it does seem true that the focus of those organizations, the so-called stories that they're interested in, are very cheap to cover. Yeah. Because they'll usually be culture wars debates. And the economy of the internet is such that that's very, very easy to mass produce and spread widely. You don't need to go and like figure out what the facts are and verify them. Whereas going out and finding out what's happening and informing people is is expensive and it it's very labor intensive. And it's interesting, like the two people that you talk about a lot in the piece, Breitbart and Dredge, were not really journalists in the sense that they ever like went and found anything out. They were aggregators and people who were occasionally given big tips and were able to publicize them. Yeah, absolutely. They're sort of post-professional in that sense. And I feel like there's a sort of revival of interest in Drudge at the moment. And I think it's at least partly because that aggregation model feels really prescient in terms of the way internet entrepreneurs make money now. You know, it's not about producing content in that laborious, slow way. It's about serving as a kind of intermediary or aggregator, a place for other people's content that actually creates opportunities to scale. So do you have a sense of like, what is the solution? Because, you know, we started this conversation talking about COVID, misinformation around that. And if there's any example that can illustrate how important it is for there to be an American public that can have access to objective, factually accurate media, that is it. Yeah. I wish I had a sort of simple answer to the question of what is to be done, uh, and I don't. But I do think, you know, there's uh, the famous line that the revolution will not be televised. And I think in this case, the solution will not be automated. <laughs> um, it will have to involve sort of human scales and human labor. Uh, it seems clear to me that any kind of new objectivity or new consensus will have to be built with a lot of human work. It's not going to be a tweak to the newsfeed algorithm. <laughs> and I think you see, you mean, you see sort of new social activist groups on the ground trying to produce better information about their communities. I think it'll just be a long process. Yeah. Sorry, I don't have a better what is to be done than that. I, I hate it when I'm told something will be hard instead of a tweak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also think seeing this problem as not being just a result of like the internet existed and then there was all this trouble yeah. is really helpful because if you understand it as being an interaction between technology and regulation and the economy and a range of other things, like then you actually can look at what you might need to change and how we could create a healthier environment. Yeah, and there need to be new business models too. I mean, people need to be able to make money doing that kind of expensive long reporting uh, that you described. I think how those are built is an open question. I mean, the ultimate, the, if we could go back in time and just get Andrew Breitbart promoted from being runner on The Price is Right to producer... That would be the easiest way to fix the situation. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. 
After a short break, we'll be checking in with Walter Shapiro about how the Trump campaign is faring. joined uh, virtually by Walter Shapiro, the New Republic's campaign correspondent, to figure out what's going on in the presidential election that uh, is also happening in this country right now. So I feel like, and maybe it's just what I tend to read myself, but I feel like I read a lot more about what the Biden campaign is up to than I read about the Trump campaign itself. And so I was wondering, Walter, if you could tell me broadly, what is the state of the Trump campaign right now? Do they, do they have a strategy? <laughs> Of course they have a strategy because they have two goals. Number one, every consultant, starting with campaign manager Brad Parscale, wants to make as much money from the Trump campaign as possible. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think uh, the first quarter financial disclosures indicated that companies associated with Parscale got about $40 million from the Trump campaign through the first quarter of 2020. And the second goal is to make sure you are not fired by Donald J. Trump. <laughs> now, this leads to another strategy, and that strategy is telling the president what he wants to hear to guarantee A, money flowing, and B, not being fired. <laughs> and the best way to do that um, is to convince him that the polls are lies, a plot by Fox News and everybody else in the world. Number two, you do things that make no strategic sense at all, <laughs> except if you remember that the goal is not to be fired. <laughs> so, for example, you advertise on Washington, D.C. television. Let me give you a hint of what you reach with Washington, D.C. TV. The state of Maryland that last went Republican in the 1980s. <laughs> the District of Columbia that didn't even go Republican when it was Ronald Reagan versus Walter Mondale. Mm -hmm. The state of Virginia, which is now a safe Democratic state. And a smidge of West Virginia that is so Trumpy that you don't have to advertise. <laughs> but the wonderful thing about the ads is that Donald Trump will see them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And if Donald mm -hmm. Trump sees them in his cable news obsession, he will say, oh, what these are powerful ads. <laughs> so, I mean, the whole thing, like everything in Trump world, is a grift. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about their advertising strategy because that's that feels to me like all there is of the campaign, especially since he still can't do big rallies. Let us just talk a little about the power of advertising. Michael Bloomberg spent $1 billion which is roughly what Hillary and Donald Trump spent combined in 2016 on his primary campaign through March 3rd. In case you haven't noticed, the Democrats are not going to be nominating Michael Bloomberg <laughs> for president. Mm -hmm. I, the fact is that the power of TV ads is tremendously overrated. And it's particularly overrated when you're talking about even a normal president running for re-election. Because you have so much other information, it isn't like, oh, I didn't know that guy Trump was president. <laughs> um, so a question about TV ads, maybe they're not so useful, but is there an effect when you stop doing them? 
You know, they say if you advertise a product, oh, yeah. it doesn't really make much of an impact. But if you stop advertising, that actually hurts you. Oh, that's really, really smart. In a normal election, 2012, the political scientists who analyzed it in a book called The Gamble, John Sides and Lynn Babrick, liken TV advertising to a tug of war. As long as both Romney and Obama campaigns were pulling, the ads had almost no effect. But had one side let go, they would have had a major effect. Mm -hmm. But that was a normal campaign <laughs> involving <laughs> sane human beings. Mm -hmm. We have so much information about Donald Trump that it is impossible to imagine even the best ad campaigns that Biden was doing nothing mm -hmm. would get over the fact that if you are a voter in, say, a swing state like Arizona, the height of the virus epidemic right now, you would think, let's see, the schools are closed, grandma's in a hospital, I've lost my job, but boy, that Donald Trump has built a wall and mm -hmm. is he defending those Confederate statues? <laughs> That's the important issue. That's a good point on the 2012 election. Obama's ads very effectively negatively defining who Romney was. And that as you say, knowledge of the president is baked in and it's difficult to change for a challenger. And in this case, everyone has pretty set opinions about Trump. But he also, he can't negatively define Joe Biden because everyone is broadly familiar with Joe Biden from the last 12 years or so. Yeah, which is the difference between Biden as the nominee and say if Pete Buttigieg got him the nomination, it might have been quite different. Mm -hmm. So we are rapidly coming up on what were supposed to be the political conventions. And I believe right now, officially, the Democrats are doing virtual, but the Republicans are still planning to meet in Jacksonville, Florida, which is having COVID-19 problems of its own. Do you think that's going to happen? Well, it's a real interesting question because psychologically, Trump needs the rally. Mm -hmm. But as we learned in Tulsa, there's a bizarre human reaction. <laughs> Given a choice between risking your life and demonstrating your fealty to Donald J. Trump, an odd number of people would rather preserve their lives. <laughs> <laughs> but again, since we started out with the whole idea that the entire point is to make money from catering to Donald Trump's ego, I think there will be a rally and there will be a normal, non-social distance mass optional <laughs> cheering rally in Jacksonville, Florida. Boy. And I really hope for the Trump campaign's sake that everyone there fills out an absentee ballot fast. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That's grim. <laughs> what do you think about journalists going to the conventions? Because usually, you know, you're a campaign reporter. This would be a big part of this oh. part of your year. Oh. Um, what does what does a convention mean in 2020 for someone like you? Well, for me, it means that I'm going to be watching it. Can I tell a little dirty secret? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have just made arrangements to cover the Democratic convention for the New Republic for Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> where they have as good TV reception as in my living room. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but uh, the truth is that to a large extent, for me, the formal sessions of a convention have always been a waste of time. Mm -hmm. The whole point of a convention is to run into people by accident in hotel lobbies, suggest, why don't we get a drink? Why don't we get lunch? Mm -hmm. And if 
you can't do those sorts of things. I don't see the point. Mm -hmm. So then how do you cover that point in the campaign? Because if you can't sort of access people and get them to open up to you in that slightly unguarded way, what's your approach? Well, it's an unproven technology, but I, I hear it works. I'm going to spend a bunch of time on the telephone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but again, the whole point of a convention is it is a TV show. Mm -hmm. yeah. The only reason that we are putting on conventions is because the legacy TV networks have been shamed into giving each party <laughs> at least an hour every night, mm -hmm. culminating in the acceptance speech in prime time as roadblock TV. Yeah. Take away the roadblock TV and the convention all would be a tiny event mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there are no decisions being made. Yeah. It's a slightly play devil's advocate, though. I mean, the spectacle of politics is an important way of bringing the broader public in, right? Making them feel like they belong to this group, making them feel like they have access to seeing politics actually play out. Do you think there is something lost when you don't have the theater? Oh, of course there is. My sister ran for convention delegate from Connecticut because she originally had really wanted to go to the convention in Milwaukee because it's a part of belonging. It's a reward for being a good Democrat. Do you think if we get through this year without them or doing them in this very diminished form, do you think they'll come back in 2024? Can it survive? If there is a general consensus on the nominees in both parties in 2024, and I assume Biden, if elected, and I think he will be, will be a one-term president because of age, mm -hmm. then I think that we'll have a much diminished convention. But there's always a possibility for those of us like myself who have been dreaming about this, there's always a dream of a contested convention. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, Walter. See you soon. Oh, this is so much fun. This is the politics of everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please take advantage of the New Republic's exclusive summertime offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. Available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening.